Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, May 7th. More announcements continue to trickle out from the professional tennis organizations as ongoing ATP and WTA merger talks continued. We're finally getting a look at the final details of the first wave of player relief funding that a joint effort between the WTA, the ATP, the Grand Slams, all of the vested interests to help those players who are taking such a financial bath during this coronavirus pandemic help keep them on their feet help ensure that professional tennis stays strong not just at the top of the game but throughout all of the various levels uh, and we can get through this crisis in one piece and of course I teased earlier in the week on Technique Tuesday I have spent this week taking a deep dive watching all too much film of Juan Carlos Ferrero on YouTube we're talking 02 Shanghai Masters Cup we're talking 03 French Open we're talking 03 U.S. Open. It's been all Juan Carlos Ferrero for me, and as I teased on Technique Tuesday, I wanted to take a deep dive into his career. Joining me today to do just that and talk about the day's biggest storylines, you know him as my doubles partner, partner in crime, returning co-host of these Crack Rackets podcast, Maxwell LeBauer-Rothman. Maxie, welcome back to the mini break. How are you doing tonight? Well, I got to say watching those together and live commentating between just the two of us was fantastic we might have to get a little recording session of us just talking about the match while it's happening because that was electric let me tell you we almost recorded a cr live episode just via facetime i was like how can i record i like do i get to save this facetime audio can i send it to west stuff and i was like ah we'll just record it separately there were some golden takes in there we really should have we i think it was a mistake and it was an O2 Masters Cup, too. We've done so many slam matches. It's like, how great would it be to do a CR Classic that's not on a slam? And, hey, that might be a sneak peek for you listeners of what's to come. We've got some things in the works that we think you all will enjoy, of course. If you follow and subscribe to our YouTube channel, which you all should be at this point, you'll have seen the episode Max and I just did for CR Classics, where we talked about the 09 Wimbledon men's singles final between Roger Federer and Andy Roddick. The reason I bring that up now is we've talked a lot of Andy Roddick. As of late, we talked about him versus Stan Wawrinka when you were last on the Mini Break podcast. We've talked about you know him now on the CR Classics. We also talk about him in our brand new podcast series, the Inside Out podcast, which takes a look at some of our favorite storylines throughout the course of tennis history. It's not just day in, day out, match in, match out, but we take a look in Season 1 at the best American male tennis players throughout the Open era. We go all the way back to Arthur Ashe, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, and and of course, we do an entire episode on the Andy Roddick era of American men's tennis, how far above he was the rest of his competition. So there's just some content for you, Cracked Rackets listeners, to go check out in case you need any more to fill your daily tennis needs. We're all missing pro tennis at this point, Maxie. Oh, we really are. And, you know, the, the good thing is, I think uh, we've only got, what, another six weeks or so until the 
suspension has, you know, as far as we currently know, is officially uh, ending. July 13th is uh, the date that we're all looking forward to for it to, uh, you know, hopefully come back full time. But, um, you know, I, I know that you and I are both. The, the only reason we're watching all these old matches is we're desperate. Let me tell you, <laughs> we are desperate. Yeah, well, there are some exhibition matches starting to emerge, and we're going to do fake odds at the end. I would put the fake odds right now. Is tennis going to actually return in ATP WTA form by July 12th? I would say no is a strong minus 500 favorite at this point. That's just for so many reasons. Testing capacity, travel bans, coordination, events that are actually going to stay scheduled, and whether they can have fans or not, and how that impacts their revenue, whether it's even worth putting on the event at this time or more. We're going to talk about that a little bit when we get into our news segment, but of course the reason we can talk about anything on these mini break podcasts is because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports, and for more than 20 years, Midwest Sports has served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers. They offer a comprehensive selection of fast-shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match, with tens of thousands of products available from shipping for shipping to your door. They value innovation and have personally tailored their products products to highlight your skills on the court and maybe you're like me you just kind of like going out there it doesn't really matter what stick you're using you can't really tell what accentuates the features of your game anyways you're just kind of faking it till you make it well the good news is their well-trained staff are intimately familiar with tennis equipment and can help you find that perfect racket that perfect tennis shoe the perfect strings and of course the perfect clothing that is sure to put you ahead of the competition max i know you had an experience where you needed your tennis equipment Well, look, you know, I was actually, uh, I was out of string uh, and I went to my stringer and I said, Hey, you know, I need, I need the next best thing. And and honestly, you know, as this guy was telling me, he wasn't quite sure what the next best thing was. And he actually called up Midwest sports, got a representative on the phone and said, Hey, I've got these two strings here. My, my buddy uses RPM blast. What's similar to it. Uh, and they told him the RPM spin is, you know, as close as you can get. Luckily, he had it, and he threw it in my racket, and it felt pretty much the same. So they were ready to help him out, um, and you know, it was you know, as quick as a phone call. It was pretty, pretty nice to see that. Yeah, and of course, our friends at Midwest Sports, accessible via the phone as well. And of course, for any of you who need your tennis needs fulfilled, please just go to their website, MidwestSports.com. Whether it's Yonix, whether it's Wilson, it's Nike. You're still doing a poor man's Rafa imitation like uh, Maxi over there, and you need to use a Bablot as well. They've got all of their gear, on all the gear you could need on their website, MidwestSports.com. You go there, you find what you need. You use our promo code CR15, you'll get 15% off your order as well as let them know that we sent you there you'll also get free two-day shipping on all orders that exceed 75 dollars. so go to midwestsports.com use that promo code cr15 save a little money in your pocket and get all of your tennis needs fulfilled in a one-stop shopping destination okay maxi that being said let's get into the news today because again there's been a lot going on uh, throughout the professional tennis world it's hard to keep track of anything hopefully you've all been listening to these mini break episodes because that's why we do these news segments to help help you keep track of the various moving parts going on right now in tennis and I think the biggest storyline of the day that came outside of you know the details of the player relief funding and the merger talks was that tennis Australia chief Craig Tilley came out today and he said the best case scenario 
for the 2021 Australian Open. Let me repeat that. The 2021 Australian Open, an event that would take place in January, is a tournament with only Australian fans and the players there taking part after they quarantine. The worst case is no Australian Open at all. Maxi, again, to hear that in 2021, that international fans would not be allowed at the event for safety precautions, that at best case, they're going to be played in front of Australian fans at most, plus the players who will have to be there for some time to quarantine beforehand. Your reaction to that, you know, that comment, that soundbite from Craig Tilley. Well, I mean, talk about a, a home field advantage, right? And all those Australian <laughs> players just fired I don't know, but up. If to we've hear learned that. anything, it's that Federer fandom transcends country. Oh, no doubt that that is true. But if you're telling me that Dim and Hour and Kyrgios aren't getting some uh, some rowdy cheers out there, you're crazy. Um, if Kyrgios wins the Open and only Australian fans are there to see it, did it actually happen? <sighs> Probably not. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I I think that we got to get these tournaments going, Uh, whether it's with, uh, you know, only the local crowd or not. um, uh, You know, tennis needs to happen for a variety of reasons. You know, we need the we need the point system to, you know, keep going. We need to get these players, you know, maintaining their uh, their income streams. You know, there's just a a need for it to start and to to continue uh, and if you know the best case scenario is only local fans can come to the tournaments, then so be it. Um, I think I think we have to you know play it through. What do you think about tennis with no fans at all? If an event like the Australian Open was to pull that off and say, "Hey, we just for the safety, it's going to be just TV revenue. It's going to be just a TV product, only minimal staffing, minimal everything to ensure safety and health, and you know follow all of the local government precautions." Would that surprise you? Uh, definitely wouldn't surprise me. And I think again, like you know, there are so many different things that are affected by this tournament not happening. Uh, you know, even the I know that ball boys will have to take you know separate precautions as well as uh, umpires, but you know that those are player those are people that are you know getting income from this tournament. There are like you said the the TV rights that is income for those companies, the players that you know. There's just so many people that are affected by these events that you know in any capacity for them to happen. I think that they need to happen, and you know it's definitely going to be weird uh, seeing a grand uh, you know a grand slam center court stadium with no fans but um you know it's definitely gonna and it'll change the dynamic of these matches i think you know you find a lot of players really feed off that energy and uh, it'll be interesting to see how they pump themselves up if that does become the case yeah, the, it will be a quiet crowd, and I know people complain that, oh, these crowds are too quiet now. They're too stiff. They're not getting into the match. Uh, you know, there are locations where that's just certainly not the case. Imagine a French Open without the rowdy French Open crowd. Imagine a match at Wimbledon without all of the royal figures and just the pageantry of the event. It'll be different. Of course it will. By the way, on that ball boy comment you made, I have a response to you, but I'm going to save it for the fake odds we're going to do at the end. You'll like that question, I promise you. Uh, to your point about the slams with no uh, matches there and you know just playing these events because players need the revenue. I have some financial numbers behind the U.S. Open, which isn't the Australian Open, but again, it's about as comparable as you can get in terms of how much income it makes, how much that you know uh, filters out to the rest of what the USDA tries to do because 
Tennis Australia. In turn, you know, they need the Australian Open for their operations as well. The U.S. Open accounts for 82% of the USTA's operating revenue. That's 400 out of the 485 million they make during the year. So let's just assume, by the way, that since there's been no tennis through February, at most outside of the U.S. Open, the USTA would maybe net 10 million in revenue this year, and that's being generous. I mean, 10 million isn't enough to do anything. And you look at that 400 million max. How much do you think tickets account for that revenue? Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's pro- tickets might be 40 million, might be 10 percent, one third of the revenue wow. comes from ticket sales. I know. That's more than I you, thought. It's New York. I mean, think about it. The ticket sales and then the concessions that come along top of that and just all the money sponsors pay because they know they're going to have their events highlighted. I mean, it's a windfall. These slams need to happen for so many of, you know, for the four tennis uh, federations that have them. They have to happen. But losing out on a third of that revenue, you know, for Wimbledon, I bet they, they'd make less money this year had they tried to play the event without fans than they would have by taking the insurance policy. And that's not going to be the case for every tournament. But for the Australian Open to hear that they want to incorporate fans because, you know, a third of the revenue, even if it's a third of the third, you still at least get some proportion of the pie i mean they need it it has to happen and so do i think of you know the financial windfall of not having events will hurt the 250 level tournaments the smaller tournaments the internationals yes i think they'll hurt them disproportionately but the masters events the majors there's too much money on the line those events will come back as soon as it's safely and health you know health precaution wise possible so, you know, two things. One thought that just came to mind, uh, and I'm sure has been discussed, and I'm curious your thoughts. What do you think about, you know, to compensate for the lack of ticket revenue, charging to see maybe a, a semifinal or a final match on television? Pay-per-view? Yeah. They can't. They, they've already guaranteed those matches to the spot. You know, there's no way you can say to ESPN, hey, buy the first 12 days and then the last four are going to be pay-per-view they'd be like absolutely not we pay for the last four days only and we tolerate the first 12 (laughs) yeah i guess i'm just thinking hypothetically right like would would people still pay to see those matches on television i I mean personally for people like us i would i mean i would say yes or like a challenger Uh, live feed feed and live feed feed uh pay-per-view feed and it's like shot yeah thank you and can you do that because you know gamblers want to watch the streams and there's a lot of money that goes behind that as well i don't know the feasibility of it but they will explore every option they're going to get creative. And that's why, again, even at the regional level, that's just the extreme is to have the players come in two weeks beforehand in quarantine and then keep the event regional. That's just the reality. Until travel – you know, again, I'm, I'm not trying to speak from a health – you know, a medical perspective, but just logistically, if there are travel restrictions in place – you're not going to be able to get all these international players across the globe. If restrictions are lifted and there are still other health precautions, such as you have to quarantine for two weeks in the country before participating in something like this, or say there's some sort of vaccination and the ATP and WTA say you have to be vaccinated if you want to participate in this, uh, they'll do, they will explore all of those options. Yeah. And, you know, to the point you made about, you know, the the tournament starting as soon as humanly possible, you know, not necessarily news that came out today, but in the last couple of days, the French Open talked about uh, their new postponed date and how it'll start. uh, They'd like to start in on September 20th. How interesting is that, given that the U.S. Open September 27th now they pushed it back. That was the extra week. 
qualifying starts so, okay. the 20th. Right, qualifying starts the 20th. Mm-hmm. But still, think about how interesting that is, given that the, the U.S. Open is still talking about starting on time, the finals of the U.S. Open bleeding into the second week of September, and then we've got the French well, Open what, to, two, three weeks later. So why I think what that tells me is that the U.S. Open is full steam ahead trying to do whatever they can to make sure they can play the event. And that's the French Open being like, hey, we screwed you earlier, you know, tip of the cap, sorry about that. We're going to push our event back another week because you seem to really want to keep these dates because you think it's going to happen. And kudos to them. Keep executing until we find out. But again, over under, are we going to get tennis back by then? I don't know, man. I talked about it yesterday. Nadal said if he could have a clean slate. And, you know, this sentiment is going to be more reflected in the top players, the players who are financially secure. But he said, hey, let's wipe away this season and just start things normally again in 2021 if possible. I could see that sentiment growing, particularly amongst the top 20 players. And, like, let's say – and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but since we're going into hypotheticalville, let's go there. Let's say a Nadal or a Federer (coughs) – excuse me – just – they decide, you know what? No, I'm not risking it. I'm not coming. I'm not playing. I don't need this. Doesn't that affect every event subsequently? If like the if any members of the top ten of the WT and the ATP just decide, you know what? I'm throwing away this season till I know for sure I can be out there participating in a healthy way. Even if the tours can try their best to guarantee it, but you just can't guarantee that sort of thing. Doesn't that take away from the revenue? Doesn't that cause an asterisk next to all this season? There is at a certain point, and we're not there yet, but you know, let's say we approach July 1st and as we're approaching that deadline and it's still quite clear that we can't travel freely. At what point do you just say, you know what, and I know there's financial interest, but this season's just a wash, and we can't, we, we just can't afford and logistically can't execute this late-season scramble? Well, look, I mean, I definitely could see that happening, and, you know, I'll, I'll take us one step deeper into hypotheticalville. Imagine the fields if yeah. we don't have a top 10, and the opportunity for a lot of players to win a tournament without, you know, the big three there and, and those top 10 guys. I mean, it would be very interesting to see and I'm sure some of those guys who are ranked a little bit lower would be willing to take the risk um go out there you know take all the necessary precautions and and do it to you know get some money get some points uh and and potentially get a W under their belt without you know the big three will it maybe not feel as good sure but I don't think it matters at the end of the day I can guarantee you all the money in my pocket just because of the karma I've built from the tennis gods that Alex Zverev wins his first slam in 2020 and everyone holds it against him they're like no that slam didn't count Djokovic didn't play Nadal didn't play (laughs) Federer didn't play that what are you talking about this means nothing and like of course that's what's going to happen and if it was Djokovic who won it or Federer or Nadal it would totally count but because it was Zverev it's not going to end up counting anyways that's just a personal gripe for me yeah again these are the sort of things these conversations are happening all across tennis these are this is really the storyline to follow and of course they've talked about it in a bunch of different places the New York Times Christopher Clary in my opinion has been on top of the story the best he wrote another piece and I mentioned this on yesterday's mini break but talking about uh, he supports and again he's the CEO of the WTA Steve Simon supports the idea of merging women's and men's tours that's a piece again that uh chris elaborates on and i don't want to steal the piece from him but you know in essence steve simon says it will be complicated it won't be an overnight process uh but the idea of you know right now the atp and wta are competing interests they're competing for the same sponsors they're competing for the same tv slots they're competing for the same venues at the same times 
the idea of merging them into one, uh, it just it, it it makes sense. It it from a financial standpoint, it will help all parties involved to be able to negotiate as one entity and to be view tennis under one prism. Uh, so you have that component. And then you have the second component, which is clear that's been what's been exposed through this coronavirus pandemic. And, of course, there was nothing that you could ever do to prepare for something like this. Um, but, you know, it's clear that because every player is an individual contractor, because there are so many separate entities, it was hard to get the sort of help and support all of these various players at the lower rankings uh, spots needed uh, because, you know, there's just not enough money available to them. Federations can't afford to float all of these players. And if they're not playing tournaments, there's no available for them to earn any income, particularly when so many public courts are closed and they can't uh, teach lessons either to supplement their incomes. But, you know, I, I guess, A, the... Um, I, the details, I should say, for the Player Relief Fund came out yesterday, Rothman. I'm curious your thoughts on that and, you know, the, on the final details there and then also curious. You know, I, I just feel like at this point, and, you know, Steve Simon, Andrea Gardenzi, who's the ATP president, Vashik Pospisil in an interview today, everyone has said even if these merger talks are successful, they're going to take at least a year, maybe longer, uh, to come to fruition. But it just feels like at this point, I, I don't know how there's any turning back. If it turns out from this that they don't end up merging, I would be shocked. Yeah, I mean, that, right, I think you're spot on. How how do you at this point go back and say, you know what, never mind, uh, we're not actually going to do it. I think there would be a lot of upset players, Especially because fans. there's nothing else to talk about. <laughs> right. Um, and so maybe they shot themselves in the foot, you know, jumping into it a little bit too quick. Uh, you know, announcing it on such a public stage, but uh, at the same time, sometimes you need to do that to actually get things going and get things launched. Um, but look, you know, I, I think if they can make it, you know, successful, uh, it'll be really good for the entire game. Um, you know, it's something that I, I think a lot of players and, and fans do want. Um, it's just a matter of execution at this point. And if they can, you know, do it well, I say go for yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's fair. And the reason I wanted to blend the talk of the merging tours and the player relief funding is because, again, the player relief comes out. Uh, it ends up being about $6 million raised between the two organizations, ATP, WTA, the ITF, all of the various Grand Slams contributing as well. And it's interesting. I think it I think it gets about 800 players, both in the singles and doubles uh, tour combined it affects about that many players which is a lot when you mm -hmm. think about and again it. uh to hear all the details of the press release check out yesterday's mini break uh, where i talked you know i went through the atp statement but uh the idea that you know it's going to be behooven of the atp and the wta as organizations to uh, pass out the player relief funding to ensure that the right players get it to ensure that the system is not abused and you know who's governing that do the, I'm sure the player council will have a say in things, but is it the player council distributing the money? Is that what we really want? Is these, you know, Djokovic and Federer and Nadal sitting in a room being like, you know who I really like is that, uh, that you know, Kasper Rude kid. I think he, we should throw him 10 Gs because he's the future of the game. And obviously they're not going to do that, but it's just like it w there's no negotiation. It, it's just very unclear how this money is going to be distributed, and that's, again, because there's no unifying body. There are so many competing interests, and what's clear is in a time of crisis, in a time of change, tennis has been exposed for how those competing interests just make it impossible to get anything done. 
absolutely. And, you know, well, hopefully they can, uh, for the time being, all come together and, and act as a unified body to get this thing roll and get the money out to players who desperately need it. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure after seeing some of the discussions on, uh, you know, the the way they've broken this up and have dissected it into rankings and past career earnings based on tournament success, uh, I'm sure that they're going to, you know, do it in the most fair way possible. So uh, at this point, it's just about getting it out to the players. It's also it become clearer and clearer that Federer jumped the gun, that they were not ready. Gaudenzi and Steve Simon <laughs> to have these details released and that they wanted to have a more coherent plan because the plan's just been picked apart in public and it's like no one wants that you want to hear you know if you're presenting an idea you don't want to say how here's my idea and then when you're asked by your employer how can you execute it although I suppose I have this conversation with Dalton all the time you don't want to go in there and say I have no idea you want to say here's my plan and here's how I plan to execute it what do you think and we're unfortunately heard here's the plan we don't get to see how they want to execute and we just skipped ahead to the what do you think portion and it's hard to jump to a bunch of assumptions again before we really have heard the details ironed out but I just wanted to get your thoughts of course that is the biggest news story right now in professional tennis so we had to spend a little bit of time talking about it today and Christopher Clary again of the New York Times has just been on top of this story from the beginning so be sure to go check out all of his work uh, because he really is fantastic at his job all right just a couple other quick ones for you and then we'll get to our debate today let's start with uh, this story. Have you heard about the scandal going on in Spain, how Nadal, how Djokovic, how Mark Granollers, they all went out on the tennis court over these past couple of days and were rebuked by the Spanish Tennis Federation who called the hotel Djokovic was in like, hey, you can't let him do this. And same thing to Nadal. They called him and said, hey, you can't go on the court. You know, does it shock you? that I, I, I guess... I, what are you, just your thoughts about this story? I just thought it was a funny story. It's like, of course that you know. Again, I'm not trying to make like follow your safety and health guidelines from your local government officials. We want to get through this crisis. We all have to absorb a little bit of pain, but a little bit now helps a long ways later. But you just knew this sort of story was going to happen eventually. No, of course, and you know it's actually more surprising that they didn't choose a more private yes. place Agreed. to do it, given. Given who these guys are, I mean, come on, you can't find a private court somewhere to, I mean, do it at your own academy at one of those courts that's covered. And it just seems, it was almost weird that it was this, you know, easily accessible to, you know, find these guys and call them out. But uh, yeah, of course, you got to call them out. They don't have a choice. Uh, Given how little we know that they've gotten away with in their personal lives, and we know they've gotten away with some stuff in their personal lives, but like that Nadal and Djokovic don't have a guy who like sets up the incognito hit where it's like, hey, don't worry. Yeah. How do you not have a guy for that? They definitely have a guy for that. They were probably just like, yeah, whatever. At this <laughs> that guy point. just didn't execute. Yeah, he got a little lazy in week nine of quarantine. He's definitely <laughs> fired now. <laughs> Djokovic releases two in his camp over turmoil. Yeah, you can see that it's the same guy who led to the anti-vax comments. It's just like it's all that oh, guy. Oh God, he's Let's the not vax there. comment guy. He's the set up the tennis guy. Um, no, but yes, I just thought that was an interesting story. Two more on the more positive note. I don't know if people know this, but just to say, hey, great shot to the Roger Federer Foundation, which has granted one million dollars to provide yep. nutritious meals for sixty-four thousand vulnerable young children and their families through their partners in Africa, while schools are closed once again Roger Federer leader on the court off the court in the community that's why he's one of if not our game's biggest superstar also 
the ITA this uh, today, it was the Set for Success Day. They wanted to honor all of the seniors across the country who obviously had their final years robbed, uh, who had their senior uh, years of college robbed, and just appreciate what all that they did. There were a bunch of cameos, you know, people like Kevin Anderson, James Blake, Christian, and so many from across the country came together across the globe really to honor these athletes. Your thought on Set for Success? Well, yeah, I mean, just a, a really nice tribute. I know uh, it, it isn't a lot, but still, if I were a player, it would be really nice to see uh, this kind of tribute and this kind of video come out to, you know, say we, we feel for you. Uh, but, you know, definitely another thing to keep in mind, uh, it doesn't apply necessarily to every player, but they're, they are granting an extra year of eligibility for these players. So, uh, you know, a little silver lining in all this, they may still have a chance to play next year if they want to. Uh, and, and hopefully, you know, it, it can be a little bit of a, uh, a revenge tour for them if they and get to come And, of course, back. for any of you college tennis fans who want to hear more about the 2020 season, hear more about the storylines heading into 2021, how the coronavirus has impacted college tennis, go check out our latest episode of The Great Shot Podcast. Chris Helioris, Matt Stokoyak, and I coming together one last time to put a bow on the Division One men's season, talk about the All-Americans, pick our ideal lineups from across the country. It was a very fun episode that I know all of you college tennis fans will enjoy so be sure to go check that out but yeah to your point look I wrote a letter in the immediate aftermath dear seniors thank you uh, for all that they did in college tennis all of those words stay true now because not every senior is going to come back for various circumstances or whether they have a job and they're ready to enter the professional world and so the tennis becomes secondary to them oh uh, yeah it, it would suck for any anyway. if this happened to us my senior year I would have gone back for another year of undergrad I would have just been like my Mom, Dad, Absolutely. you understand, right? Sorry. Like this, this makes sense to you. I hope you get it. <laughs> and they would be like, Alex, M- yes. See, my do. mom would actually be like, Alex, I completely understand. My dad would be like, nope. Like, it, that's funny. Yeah, he's Sorry. like, Sorry. But, uh, yeah, that's not happening. Oh, did I tell you that Beattie and Connor confirmed to both coming back? I, yeah. I saw. Confirmed awesome. there in the North Carolina senior. Girls are in, so – I mean, there's so many more across the country, but, you know, for me, that Michigan men's team, that UNC women's team, uh, special places in my heart because, you know, to call that you, I don't have to get into why they're special places in my heart, but I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, a fan uh, of both schools for obvious reasons. But that's all of our news today. Uh, we do, of course, want to get to our discussion about the career of Juan Carlos Ferrero, talk about why he is an exceptional player. Before that, we got to go to a commercial break. Rothman? Yeah, if if you want any humor too, go check out Cece uh, <laughs> Boss's Twitter. Great humor right. there; it's right. it's awesome. But wait, but do that as you're going. Yeah, I was going to say, of course, break. all of that you can find on Overserved. Maybe you can go subscribe to this YouTube link as you listen to this commercial break. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome back to the mini break. Max Rothman, Alex Gruskin here with you on a Thursday to talk about the day's biggest news as well as our deep dive into one. Let's try that one more time. Let's give it one more go. No, it's not no, stopping. No, no, no. Keep going. Uh-uh, not no more because we middle. <laughs> yeah, we, we too deep. deep. Now. No, delete it all. Delete we it all. Deep. 
Um, <laughs> all right, here we go. <clears throat> Welcome back to the mini break. Max Rothman, Alex Gruskin here with you on a Thursday. We just ran through the day's biggest storylines from the professional tennis world. Now we want to switch gears and do something we've been doing a lot of here on the mini break podcast with there being no live tennis or at least no live official results from the ATP or WTA tour in the recent past in the ongoing future. Oh, we've been taking deep dives into some of tennis's past, looking at some of our favorite careers, discussions about players like Andy Roddick versus Stan Wawrinka, Marin Cilic versus Tomas Burdich, Monica Seles, Venus Williams, Justine Ennin. We've been having a lot of fun because obviously all of us right now, when we need our tennis fix, we go to youtube.com. We go on those deep dives wherever the YouTube pathways take us we're just trying to get on you know watch any results watch any tennis that we can and so recently I think it was this weekend and I'm trying to think of what the inciting incident was it was really our conversation about Wawrinka and Roddick last week Rothman where you know I was watching that I was watching 2003 tennis and I actually think it was this weekend, I was, it was on a Friday night. I may have told this story on a different podcast, but, you know, it was just one of those nights where I was bored. You know, we're not going out. Bored's the wrong word. Where I, I'm not going out. We're all at home. We're all trying to figure out what I can do. I watched so much tennis throughout the day, but it was after 11 p.m., and, you know, there were substances going on in my body, all of the fun ones, and I um, was like, hey, you know what I haven't done in a while just for me? Uh, I haven't watched any tennis. And or I just haven't watched any tennis just for me because I obviously still enjoy watching tennis. But I wanted to ask, you know, I wanted to find out, do I really still love it? Can I watch it recreationally and just sit there for hours and be like, you know what, this is fun? And the answer to that is an unequivocal yes, by the way. I, I watched the entire Djokovic-Nadal highlights. That was 30 minutes. I followed that up with 30 minutes of Murray Djokovic, all from that 2012 Australian Open, just to make sure that I was correct in my thoughts that the Murray-Djokovic match was better than Nadal-Djokovic. The answer still remains yes. Uh, and then I clicked on 2006 Las Vegas because I was like, you know what? I want to watch something from the mid-2000s. And I went back and I saw there was an event called the Tennis Channel Open, which took place in Las Vegas. And again, this is a long story. I ended up clicking on a James Blake Leighton Hewitt match in my suggestion line there. It was the 2002 Shanghai Masters Cup, Juan Carlos Ferrero uh, versus uh, Carlos Moya. And, you know, I... I obviously have seen Carlos Moya uh, in the coaching box for Rafa Nadal. I'm well aware of who Juan Carlos Ferreira was, but I haven't watched that much late 90s, early 2000s in my life, and I saw the Moya-Ferreira match was on a hard court, but also on a court with no doubles alleys. So I was like, you know what? I'm in. Let me watch this. And it was the best possible decision I could have made because just watching Juan Carlos Ferrero, I fell in love. And Maxi, I, you know, we're going to talk about his career in a second. We're going to talk about his prime. We're going to compare him to some other players with comparable results. But let's just start there. Well, you know, when I when I first sent you a message, hey, I'm really in on Juan Carlos Ferrero right now. Do you mind watching this? What were the first thoughts that popped into your head? And then, you know, just you know, getting into his highlights. What were your initial reactions? And also, I want to call this segment well, Shot Spot Confirms because we're sort of confirming what the stats say about his career by going back and doing the eye test. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, I like it. Uh, second of all, I mean, it, it's confirmed. The dude <laughs> rips the ball. Um, and, you know, my first thought was, you know, same thing. I've, I've seen the guy play. Uh, it's been a while. And 
you know, when you go back and, and everyone should go and watch this match because it's just beautiful tennis, it really makes you realize how good these guys were, even with, you know, what we think is, you know, not as good technology in the rackets. I mean, I think there's so there's often talk about, you know, the 90s guys, the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, you know, the, the technology wasn't as good. And uh, I think that's absurd. I mean, these guys are absolutely ripping the ball. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you gave them today's rackets, I think it'd be the same. But his strokes are just beautiful. Um, the the forehand, which you think is rusty, okay, I, I think I'm is I'm going to cut you off, not because he, of the game, but because you just made a point on the early 2000s and, and late 90s, and I just don't want to let it get away before we get into his game because that was part of the uh, my other fascination with this match. 2002 and just that early time period is such a fascinating time. Well, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, because we already recorded this podcast off mic when I called you initially with these highlights. Um, but... <laughs> It's just, a, and it's not just the racket technology, though, because the court is fast. There's no denying that ball is flying off of that hard court surface. And it's so funny because it's a court with no alleys. And you think, you know, I haven't watched a court with no alleys. They must have been a 40 year ago match. And it's like, no, they were actually still doing that in the early 2000s. But that contrast in style, and you see it in Carlos Moya, who just, he's sort of in that in-between generation where he's not serving and volleying, but it's serving plus one. It's serving, you know, a forehand cross court, a forehand down the line, follow it. I mean, he moves in exactly. a and lot. The tra- you know, the transition period that the ATP is in, where there are people who come from the 90s and still play that predominantly attacking style of tennis, versus a guy like a Juan Carlos Ferreira, who's in that Guga Querton, who's in that Michael Chang, Jim Courier model of just grinder, to watch them compete head-to-head, there are people who complain and a lot of times they're just eggs on twitter which you know those ghost accounts but there are people who say oh the atp is too monotonous and everyone plays the same way i totally understand why people think that now because and i made this joke on technique tuesday but carlos moya is literally milos rayonich but good and it's like if we had someone like that on tour now, he would just be a fa- fascinating contrast to even you know a Djokovic or a Monfils or just anyone who likes to be behind the baseline and play you know that aggressive style of baseline tennis. Sorry, that was a long tangent. Uh, well, no, I mean I I agree with the Moya you know comparison to Ranich, um, and we also talked about him playing a little bit like Safin, right? You know he he's got the the big backhand. Likes to move in, uh, but I also, you know, I think it's often uh, easy to say that uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero is a grinder, and I think this is like one of those matches where you actually get to see him uh, in a different light, and that, I think that's why he was successful on the hard court is he actually can really hit through the forehand, uh, and and you see it a lot in this match. I mean, he, he one pulls Moya off the court, but two, I mean, you watch him control some points with that forehand, uh, and yes, he is a clay quarter. Yes, that. Uh, it definitely is his so preferred I, surface. I, well, and I just, you're it's me a misnomer because so I was doing quarter. research for this podcast. I have the quote in front of me. It's in a New York Times article where he's asked, you know, what is your favorite surface to play on? And he says, I know you're going to think it's clay court, but I prefer playing it's on clay. Hard. And he says hard. But his look, words, but, not and, mine. and he can say that. I know, and he can say that, but the stats don't show it. His his clay court record is seventy two point eight percent. He's two hundred fifty four and ninety five, and his hard court record is one seventy eight and one thirty four, which is a fifty seven point one percent. I want you guys uh, to know percent. when we had I mean, this conversation a, Saturday night, I read that stat to you because we had this same. Sorry, sorry, I'm having deja vu right now on the pod. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it, it definitely shows. But it, and it's funny because yeah. we had this conversation. And I was saying he's very clearly a clay court player, and uh, you know, while he may not think so, yeah. the stats do show it. Uh, but also, we do get to see why he was successful on the hard court. He can still push through the court, but he can also do that grinding side. But back to your point, yes, there's a very clear disparity between the different eras and generations of tennis that you got to still see in that late 90s, early 2000s with players moving away and transitioning from the serve and volley game to, you know, the the one-two punch kind of game to kind of the baseline game that we see today. And, and I do understand that sentiment because it it's true and it's very much uh, exposed during these kind of l- earlier matches that we're watching in the late 90s and, of and early 2000s. of course, that generation of Spanish tennis players may be the greatest generation of tennis players of any generation competing with the Sampras, Agassi, Curry, or Chang American generation because you get players like Carlos Moya, slam champion, Albert Costas, uh, slam champion, obviously Juan Carlos Ferrero, slam champion, but then you also get, uh, I believe, Segura as well, who is a, uh, I don't know if it's slam champion, but awfully close to it, and obviously eventually it breeds Robredo, it breeds Verdasco, it breeds Rafa Nadal, and, you know, David Ferrer, and this is an exceptional generation of uh, talent. Uh, of Spanish talented player of Spanish players who were talented excuse me hey great shot once again and let's get into Juan Carlos Ferrer because a you know his playing style you sort of talked about it aggressive baseliner feels like a justifiable uh, way to describe his game when it's at his best and he may have my favorite nickname in tennis history El Mosquito because he was just a fly around the court. He's tracking everything down. And in this match against Moya, his ability to hit out of the corners, I mentioned there were no alleys on the court. It didn't feel like the court was small, though, because of the way they extended the balls outside of the alley, the way Ferrero just seemed to track everything down, force Moya to hit that extra overhead, that extra passing shot. And anytime Ferrero got clean looks at anything, I mean, he just hit the ball so, you know, he struck the ball so well. He was so good on the move and solid off of both wings in a time when that wasn't always the case. And it's just clear the mold of the complete ground stroke players and, you know, that we see today. Uh, he was part of that mold and he could also move forward too. He also had a dangerous serve and you know, he played through 2012. So that's our formative years, really. I turned 17 in 2012. You turned 16. You know, that's a, that's the majority of when our tennis fandom began. And during those years, you know, he was solid. He was 23, 23, 55, 23, 29, 50 in the year-end rankings from about 07 through 2011. But there's two different Juan Carlos Ferreros. There's the one at the end of his career who struggled with injuries, who struggled with motivation, who was good but not exceptional. And then there's that guy who, at you know, in 2000 through 2003, really the beginning through the uh, beginning of 2004, was a top five talent on tour and played as such. And I mean, I just I think again seeing these highlights of him in 02 it's clear why he quickly jumped to the top of the men's game yeah absolutely and you know it, it is a bummer if you look kind of past that uh you know 2000 to 2005 era uh unlike you know Roddick and you know Roddick didn't 
you know, play spectacular too late into his career. But I, I think, you know, kind of like you're saying, El Mosquito, right? He was all over the court. I think he lost some steam as he got later into his career. I uh, made a couple, you know, quarterfinal appearances at Wimbledon in 2007 and 2009. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the bulk of his career was in that very early 2000s. And I think that's also why uh, sometimes you forget about him and think he's older than he is. Yeah. He's only 40 years old, right? I mean, the the guy is a couple years older than Roddick, uh, but his career kind of fizzled off towards the end. I also end. just want to add, those two quarterfinals at Wimbledon, yes, his best surface is is clay, but unless, you, you know, you don't succeed on both clay or and grass unless you're an exceptional talent, and that's what he is. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, so, you know, he, he did have those, you know, exceptional years, uh, but still an exceptional career uh, overall, so... You know, I do want to dive in into the comparisons between the other. So quickly, let's. I was going to say, let's talk about his his best years because that's really what sets up the comparison. And his best years, two thousand. Well, I was going to say you have to include ninety nine though, because in nineteen ninety nine, as you mentioned, Juan Carlos Ferrero, he's only forty years old now. So in nineteen ninety nine, he's nineteen years old. In June of ninety nine, he both won a challenger and he lost in a challenger final. He's playing at the challenger level. All of a sudden, he finds himself. He makes a jump and he ends up uh, inside the top fifty. He ends that year at forty two, I believe. He ended up qualifying for that U.S. Open in ninety nine. That's his first Slam main draw. And then from there, things just take off. You know, second round Australian Open, but during that 2000 season, he makes the semifinals of the French Open. He makes the quarterfinals, or third round of the Australian Open, excuse me, but semifinals of the French Open. He makes the quarterfinals in Monte Carlo, the semifinals at the end of the year in Paris. 46 and 26, 64%. He ends up jumping to number 12 in the world. I'm trying to think of a comparison nowadays for that sort of jump. Who did that from ages 19 to 20? It's like a better jump than Fritz. Fritz made that jump to number 42, but he never made that jump. I guess it's sort of Dimenauer-esque in what he did last year. He went from number 42, then at the end of last year, he got really hot. He got inside the top 20. That's the sort of jump you saw from Juan Carlos Ferrero so early in his career. And, you know, from there, you know, 46 and 26 in 2000, he then goes 57 and 21, gets up to number five in the world in 2001. And, I mean, that's when he really takes off. He's just an exceptional and you know that 2000 I should really say I should have added also part of that Spanish Davis Cup team and for him in Davis Cup that year you know it was a tremendous result just to get there in 2000 I believe uh, he knocked off Kafilnikov and Safin in the quarterfinals he knocked off Vincent Spadia in the semifinals he beat Rafter and then he clinched the 2000 Davis Cup final over Leighton Hewitt at that time he legitimately you know that's I'm winning Grand Slams, Leighton Hewitt. In 2000, at the age of 20, he was already one of the 10 best, maybe even one of the five best tennis players in the world. That has to mean something extra, despite the lack of longevity. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny. I mean, I I went and looked up real quickly Rafa, uh, because Rafa had kind of that, you know, same sort of immediate spur to the top. You know, in, uh, in 2002... I mean, I think Rafa was 16 at the time, which is insanity. Um, you know, he was 200 in the world, and then in 2003 and 2004, he's top. He breaks into the top 50, and then the next thing you know, you know, 2004, he's absent from French Open and Wimbledon, making a second round of the U.S. Open, and then he makes a fourth round of the Aussie Open, wins Wimbledon, and then w- makes a third round of the U.S. Open, uh, along with you know, a, a win. Um, 
with a bunch of wins at the Masters level, Monte Carlo, Italian Open, Canadian Open, Shanghai. Uh, so, you know, an even more impressive jump, of course, but not many players have had that kind of success that early on. Uh, so, you know, just a, a bummer that we didn't get to see that throughout the career. But, I mean, I think that speaks for itself as 2003 how 2003 clay court season. He wins Monte Carlo, loses semifinals of Barcelona. He wins in Valencia, semifinals of Rome, goes on to win the French Open. And you look at his master's title over the course of his career. Again, when he was at his best, 2000 really to 2003, he won multiple master's events. You know, this is a guy who won four titles, Rome 01, Monte Carlo 0203, Madrid 03, made two other finals, qualified for the year-end finals three straight times from 01 to 03, made the finals of the year-end finals in that 2002 Shanghai Masters Cup. Um, and you look at him, again, on clay, we, we've all grown spoiled by how good Rafa is on clay. You're like, well, no one's actually good on a surface unless you're Rafa good. But throughout the majority of tennis history, that's not how good you have to be to be considered elite on a clay court. Again, is does he think he's a clay court player? No, but to the point you made earlier, for Juan Carlos Ferrero on the clay from 2000, really, through 2003, uh, you look at it, he made the semifinal are better every year. He lost to the champion in 2000 and 2001. He lost to Guga Querton in five sets. Then he lost to Guga in three sets. He loses in the final of 02 to Albert Costa. And then he wins in that final in 2003. You know, he made the fourth round at every slam or more in uh, at every slam during the 2003 season. He reached number one in the world in 2003. We talked about Marin Cilic. We've talked about Stan Wawrinka. We've talked about Tomas Burdich. As good as those guys all were they weren't good enough to reach number one and is some of that a product of the era they played in of course but for Juan Carlos Ferrero he was so good to start his 2003 and so good in the back half of 2002 that he reached number one in the world that speaks to his ceiling as a tennis player and I think this is where you start to make the comparison right because we've talked about you know on a surface level what he has accomplished but when you compare his ceiling as a player what he accomplished during his career as a player to others Rothman where does he stand for you? So, I mean, I think we should, you know, say we are comparing him, right, to Andy Roddick, to Marin Cilic, well, and Tomas If you have someone else Burdich, who comes correct? to mind, sure, that, go for it. But, yeah, those are the main three for me. Well, I mean, th- those are the three that, you know, we, we kind of talked about before this. And among these four, I have him second behind Andy Roddick. And, and I think that, you know, one of the things that we talked about in our Vavrinka versus Roddick discussion uh, was longevity. And I know that was a huge point you made for Roddick. Uh, I mean, if you look at their wins, you know, Roddick has a few more top 10 wins. He has more titles. Uh, and he did, you know, have, a I think, a nine-year span of being in the top 10. So you got to give it to him. Um, if you want to talk about peak, peak level Juan Carlos Ferrero versus peak Roddick, that's tight. We saw it at the 03 very, US Open final, right? That may be a CR classic right. in the near future, folks. Truly. Uh, and, you know, if you look at also his record against Roddick, he is 0 5. That, that was uh, like so his there, one guy. That to that say he, just, too. he couldn't get over. Right, right. Um, so I, I do have him behind Roddick, and I do have him above both Chilich and Burdich. I, I think, given that he got to world number one, uh, you know, he has nearly as many titles. They, they all have about the same amount of titles. Um, he's got, you know, I think a few more top 10 wins than Chilich, not as many as Burdich. Uh, you know, 
you got to give it to to that really concentrated period in his career that was so successful. Both Chilich and Burnich have had similar concentrated periods, maybe a little bit longer than him, uh, but not as successful. So I'm going to give it to Juan Carlos. I think that's fair, and I have two. a bunch of stats to compare between them. But, you know, you talk about for uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, I just wanted to throw in one more fun fact. 1998 French Open Boys Singles Final loses to Fernando Gonzalez 4-6, 6-4, Also, awesome. he and Feliciano Lopez lose in the doubles final to Gonzalez and Jose Armas. Would you pay a $10 subscription? fee to watch those two matches give yeah. me a 50 for fernando young fernando imagine that that for even more that forehand just raw oh. unfiltered 18 year old fernando just pumping forehands yeah that would i would be i would watch to see you know, i oh. watch that like I'd, i'll say it, i'd watch the <laughs> f- out of that uh, like without question, um, but yeah. So you know, getting to him versus the others because you talk about the longevity. That is what Burdich and Chilich have on him. You look at the amount of time in the rankings they spent. Yes, you know, only Roddick was ever a year end number one of the group. Roddick and Furrow both reached number one. Roddick and Furrow both ended the year in the top five three times. That speaks to the upside, and I agree with you. I think you made that case perfectly, so I don't have to go there. You probably have to put Roddick above Ferrero in terms of upside, just because a. In particular, Roddick always beat Ferrero, but B, you know, their two best seasons, you could argue. I don't know. Was Ferrero better from the second half of 02 through the first half of 03 than Roddick was through the entirety of 03? That's pretty close. But the sustained excellence for Roddick in the top 10 gives him that bump over Ferrero. So I agree with you. He's probably a notch above Ferrero. But, you know, you look at all the other stats, fourth rounds at the majors. And keep in mind it when uh, Roddick played 45, Ferreira 46, Chilich 49, Burdich 60. And when Burdich had 33 fourth rounds, that's really good, over 50%. Roddick 24, again, over 50%. Chilich 23, slightly under. Ferreira 15, that's worse. You know, quarterfinals, Roddick 19, Burdich 17, Chilich 13, Ferreira 9. That's where, you know, just by attempts, Burdich, Chilich have been a little bit consistently better. But again, this gets back to peaks. Everyone gives Marin Chilich all this credit. Oh, he reached three slam finals. You know, he's done all these cool things, and he won one of them. Uh, you know, Ferrero reached more semifinals than Chilich. He reached the same amount of finals, and they won the same amount of titles. Ferrero, in his prime, reached all four, you know, fourth rounds or better at the Grand Slams in one season. Burdich did that in 2015. Uh, you know, Chilich and Roddick have never done that. Now, to Chilich and Roddick's credit, they've both made three or more at least three times. Roddick, you know, Roddick uh, four, Chilich three, Burdich six. Outside of that 03 season, Ferrero's never done that. So longevity, Chilich, uh, Burdich, check. You want to give that longevity to them at the Masters as well. That's fine. And by attempts, they're just going to have more quarterfinals uh, than uh, Ferrero. But you start getting to the semifinals. Ferrero dwarfs Chilich 11 to 5. Burdich has 19. But again, that's in over, uh, I think it's 27 more attempts. Finals, Roddick 4, Burdish 3, Ferrero 2, Chilich 0. Titles, Roddick 5, Ferrero 4, Burdish 1, Chilich 1. What that shows me, in their primes, 
Juan Carlos Ferreira was better compared to his contemporaries week in, week out than the other guys. You get to the rankings as well, and longevity, Roddick, uh, you know, Burdich, Chilich, they end up getting the edge in terms of seasons spent in the top 20 and the top 10. But for Chilich, he's only spent four year-end top 10 rankings. Ferreira's done it three times. You know, Burdich has done it seven times. Year-end top 20, Chilich has done it eight, Burdich 12, Ferreira 5. But then you get to top 40, and it's Burdich 13, Chilich 12, Ferreira 10. So yeah, they were were a little bit better in their best years, but not, you know, demonstrably better where Ferrero significantly dropped off. The difference between being ranked like 23 and being ranked 41, really not that different. And so I just... I think Ferrero has to get the edge. And then, of course, you look at the titles. Again, his his uh, career, his ceiling wasn't, uh, his prime is what I was looking for, wasn't as long as the other guys. And he still racked up 16 titles and 34 finals. For Chilich, it's 18 titles and 32 finals. Burridge has 13 titles in 32 finals. I, there's just no argument for me, except for maybe career win percentage, where they have a slight edge over Ferrero. But you look at singles, yeah, single season Not peak, much. Ferrero hit 76% in 03, 73% in 02. Burge hit 73% in 2012. That's his only season over 70. Chilich, 72% in 14. That's his only season over 70. Just at his best, Juan Carlos Ferrero was better than those other players. And, you know, this is where the longevity, the accomplishments for Burdich and Chilich aren't enough to where it distinguishes them from a Juan Carlos Ferrero. So, yeah, I probably have to put him number two as well. Well, I think you just, uh, you know, took most of the stats that are worth mentioning. <laughs> but uh, I think the thing that is most clear by this is the distinction between someone who makes it to world ranking number one and someone who makes it to world ranking number five or four and doesn't break into that top one or two. I so mean, you it's, have to it's take clear, Roddick right? over Stan, The right? guys... Sorry, sorry, go on, go on. Uh, well, well, Stan got to... He was, what, I think no, he never reached number two, two. Number two. Uh, and did three. So he's always three. Um and, and neither Chilich nor Burdich, if I'm uh, not mistaken, made it four. to number three. I think yeah. Burdich made it to number four. Chilich as well. Uh, and actually, Ch- oh. no, Chilich made it to three uh, in, in 2018. So it's close. Um, but I, I think, again, you know, reaching that number one, you have to have had, you know, a, a very clear, sustained period of excellence. Um, and for the most part, players who haven't gotten there haven't had enough success on other parts of the tour. I think Warinka is an exception to that circumstance. He's had plenty of other success on the tour outside uh, of you know his period of being you know top uh, at his peak ranking. Um, but yeah, you know if you if you look at purely ranking wise, right, you see that Marin Cilic was in the top ten four years: 2014, 2016, 2017, 2018. Burdich went six years in a row, 2010 through 2016. Uh, I might want to take the Burdich career in, in that circumstance. But, it, again, yeah, I, tight I for these guys. Ferrero's probably closer in caliber, though, to an Andy Roddick just because of how high his ceiling was than to a Chilich or a Burdich. And Agreed. I also think... And this has to be something that you credit Juan Carlos Ferrero for. He's one of those few players you could plop into today's game and with no adjustments. He doesn't have to grow up training the way, you know, all of these guys do. You throw 2002 Juan Carlos Ferrero, who's healthy, into today's game, and I think he's a top 10 player. 
And I just think that's a testament to how good he was, how he could adapt to the slowing of surfaces, give him more looks on his forehand. He was, you know, he also bleached his hair blonde, a cultural phenomenon. This guy who loves Porsches, loves going out, loves having a good time. Um, So that said, though, you know, how does a guy like a Moya or a Safin compare on today's tour? Because I think those guys still are extremely successful on today's tour. I know we're totally... That's a total segue into a different discussion, but um, you know I would care to disagree a little bit on that take. I think those guys, you know, there are guys on tour who play a big one-two punch game or play a little bit more with that, you know, well, serve and volley type aspect. I think it still has its ability to be successful. Granted, all the top guys are the the you know ground stroke well, baseliners. I, I do think um, Moya you know, there, because there a lot that. of his success was premised on him hitting a big ground stroke to move forward. I think his game translates particularly well. I think you look at the generation like a Pat Rafter, who's all about the serving and volleying, who's all about the chip and charge return. I think that game translates less to well. So, you know, Moya could be an exception. Totally. But like, I don't know, a guy like Mark Philippoussis, is there any place for him in the top 10? Yeah. No. Could he be a top 50 no. guy? For sure. But do I think there's a place for him in the top 10 in today's game? No, I just don't think he does enough. I just, you know, we, that that best-case scenario is sort of John Isner, and we've seen what John Isner could do, which at his best is a top 10 talent, but not a guy who dominates the top of the game. I just don't think that space exists. I do think Juan Carlos Ferreira, who, again, just was such a magnificent talent, was one of the guys. I think he's the only guy on this list who made a final at the year-end finals, you know, the World's uh, Tour year-end event. Um, it speaks to how good he was in O2. So I am fascinated by his career. So is so is your list then Roddick, Ferrero, Burdich, Chilich? Examine the Burdich, Chilich. Here's the other thing. Again, every time you put together these leaderboards <laughs> that involve Tomas Burdich, he's going to be number one or two in appearances in almost every category, except for when you start talking Everything. about upside. Yeah. In the upside categories, year-end finals results, mas- you know, uh, master's titles, major titles, uh, grand, grand slam, slam finals. Yeah. He falls a little bit short, but in terms of longevity, in terms of you know, uh, consistently staying healthy, in terms of just quarterfinals and semifinals appearances or top ten wins, He's at the top of, you know, almost all of these lists. And so it's just a bummer for him. His peak was yeah, also you know, peak big 10 three. to 14. I mean, he really like and you're not winning anything. Yeah, like like and that's why you see him in all these quarterfinals, semi I mean, he's in, you know, in 2011, he's in four quarterfinals and two semifinals at ATP Masters events, including a quarterfinal and semifinal at the Aussie Open and U.S. Open. I mean, he does that multiple different times where he's in multiple quarterfinals and semifinals. Same thing with so 2013. So it sounds like you're I mean, on my bandwagon right? like, you... to beat Sam Query and Kyle Edmund to make two major finals versus Burdich, who lost every time to either Federer or Murray or Nadal. Or I think Stan Wawrinka. Like I think it's less impressive to beat Edmund, to beat Query, and make the final than it is to lose those Agreed. guys in the semis. And that's why the argument that Chilich is better than Burdich just th- that's why I feel so passionate because Burdich was the better player in their prime, and that Slam title that Chilich stole, which again is a complete credit to him. But like uh, Chilich is going to fall into probably the, one of the more over. Oh, he might actually end up being so overrated that he becomes underrated. But Burdich will for perennially be an underrated player in tennis history. Underrated, agreed. 
Like I, I we think about so much that era, and he's well, talked about Bobby so Turner little. Gets I feel all like. of this love, right, and deservedly so because he's you know Mr. Hustle. He's the Captain America of the ATP tour, or you know or Captain Spain, I suppose. But just like he's the sort of personality and the work ethic we can that resonates with everyone. But, like, Burdich, because he was a cyborg, because he was emotionless, because he didn't sh- shake people's hands, as you mentioned, he doesn't receive that sort of natural adoration that some of these other tennis greats receive, and that sucks because his game deserved it. I mean, yeah, I, I remember when I used oh, I to watch it. him play against Federer and Nadal, and, yeah, it was always like, oh, man, here's that threat <laughs> that nobody wants him to beat the top three or top four because you don't want to see him in the next round playing, uh, you know, a match where it could be an all-time classic. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it, it is a bummer, but, uh, you know, you, you, it yeah, is what no, it is I, for him, I think I he'll guess. be happy. He's 10th all-time in prize money, you know, like 26 million or 9th, I think, ahead of Chilich, and it's like, no, not too yeah, bad. it's not so bad. Like <laughs> not too bad. So, yeah, no, Juan Carlos Ferro, exceptional talent, and I think a guy who gets lost in tennis history as well. Him, Albert Costa, all of those, you know, even prime Leighton Hewitt and prime Murat Safin don't get appreciated as much because it's like, okay, there was Sampras, and then there was an Agassi, and then there was a little gap where a couple people won a bunch of different majors, and then there's the era of the big three, big four. And it's like, well, actually, those early 2000s are yeah. maybe the most fascinating time because of all the generational shifts and transition in play style, transition in technology that's occurring on the ATP Tour. But anyways, I digress. It's also a fascinating time. Dude, I we could have done the same thing, and I actually think— we have to do this because uh, we'll do it on Martina Hengis and how good she was as a teenager because, you know, I was doing another deep dive. Hengis, Sellis, well, Sellis one, Hengis two. They're the best teenagers in tennis history by such a big margin, and it's not even close, and their accomplishments are just incredible. Like, if I, I again, we'll go into that a different time, I suppose. The odds this podcast, though, go over, you know, two hours are increasing by the passing moment. So, with that being said, any final thoughts for you on uh, JCF? I mean, no, just if, if, you know, you haven't gone back and seen his tape, go do it. It's super fun to watch. Uh, and, you know, like you said, I think it makes it pretty clear that uh, he deserves the praise. He clearly had, uh, you know, a peak that was outstanding, world number one caliber, uh, and <laughs> agreed. You know, he definitely could have made it, you know, on today's tour. So uh, definitely yeah, I take, read a piece from Peter Bodo on ESPN from, like, 2014 about – El Mosquito, and he's like how El Mosquito must feel resentment towards Rafa because Rafa just came in and stole all of his spotlight. And, you know, by 2006, it didn't even matter who Juan Carlos Ferreira was because Rafa was doing Rafa things, and it's just like this great generation of Spanish tennis players, and really the headline now is just Rafa. And, you know, it, it, it was a really interesting category. But, yeah, I agree with you, El Mosquito. I mean, I'm going to try and say that as frequently as possible because the it, great nickname, great It's a great player. nickname. Yeah, that forehand. It I rolls said off the across tongue. fluidity and of Jill mosquito. Simone, ability to find forehands like Dominic Team, court positioning of David Ferrer. Anything you would add to that? Uh, what? Oh, I, I gave you a comparison, and I can't remember what it was when we were talking about it. Um... You can workshop it. Shoot. Didn't. I know. I said it finds the forehand like. I I feel like. 
Yeah. I don't, I don't know how Fine I feel seven. about that. But, yeah. uh, the, no, the Jill pretty, Simone fluidity is the otherwise. thing like, I can't emphasize enough. He just makes it look so easy. Yeah. Which is he prob- does. He does. Yeah, which explains why Drives maybe the motivation the waned a little bit as the talent did as well. You don't want to go from that to something else. But anything. Anyways, uh, again, that, that is our conversation on Juan Carlos Ferrer. Hopefully you all enjoyed that. We want to do one more thing here on today's Mini Break Podcast. And, of course, many of you Cracked Records listeners may know this, but we recently announced our partnership with DraftKings, uh, who are the, sponsor of, uh, the official sponsor of the Great Shot Podcast. To learn more about our relationship with them. Go check out our most recent Great Shot podcast. But Maxie and I, in the spirit of that partnership, like to have a little fun on these podcasts whenever we come together. Give our fake odds. And I only have one for you, Maxie, because I'm going to be honest, I forgot we were including fake odds on today's podcast. But I know you've got a couple for me. Give me those after Westhoff gives us a quick fake odds sound effect. So... In light of the conversation we had earlier about the Grand Slams and timing, um, you know, I, I don't want to get into timing odds because I think that we've done enough of speculation on when these tournaments are going to happen. But uh, location-wise, there has also been some discussion for the U.S. Open uh, about it being played at Indian Wells. So the first fake odds I have are, you know, are the odds that the U.S. Open is played at Indian Wells, and I have it at minus 200 because I do think that there well, is a good chance Well, that's why they don't let you make the odds because your bias gets involved. You just want it at Indian Wells so badly. You're just – I know. I, I know you I do. do. But look, how do you have a tournament and, – and here's the huge caveat is that they could do this tournament without fans, right? If they decide to go that route, fine. Have it in New York. However – also hard to get players to New York. A lot easier to Debatable, get players to California on. where it is a little bit more spread out. Uh, I think you can see the numbers and see that it, it makes more sense. Uh, New York City is uh, a, da- a little bit more of a dangerous zone than Southern California. Um, so what would you take? Would you take that minus 200 bet on it being played at Indian Wells? Well, I would. Given that there are fans. Be the pin that bursts your bubble. Um, but You can burst my true. bubble. You burst it's my true. bubble all the time. Um, I mean, they're gonna play it. They're they're so determined to play it. That's what becomes clear. They'll play it at the you know, they sorry. They're, they'll play it at the <laughs> sports club of West Bloomfield if they think they can. They're like, you know, sure. Like it, yeah, exactly. And you I'd would love like, that. Uh, I'd be like, those courts are fast. Like, give me a Rayonich title because everything skids, especially if he's playing on court twelve. Anyways, um, I mean, they're determined to play it, and Indian Wells has the unique. Well, it, it's not even that. Perfect it's venue. just that they have this sort of situation where their owner happens to be a bazillionaire, and so he could be like, oh, we're going to take a little bit of a bath because there's no gate receipts. That's fine. Just like play it here anyways. I own this facility, so sure, I can find a way to sell corporate sponsorship, whatever. And like, he, you know, Larry Ellison is uniquely positioned to do something where others are not. Could they also have it in Miami because, you know, Governor DeSantis is much more likely to allow something like this as opposed to Governor Newsom? That's another possibility that absolutely has to be thrown out there and that's not to get political that's just a reality of the situation an event you know there's a reason these exos are happening in florida and not elsewhere um again we said we're not going to get serious i would take i mean i'm gonna i'm team rothman always so i would say minus 200 sure i'll take that but that's probably (laughs) a little high 
It's probably still plus something, it, but it, it's a low it's a, plus something. It might be. But all right, let's let's move on from that one. I got one more for you. I know it's getting late, so I'll, I'll give you this one, and then you give me yours. Um, over, under – well, not, it's not even an over, under. I guess it's just this. Straight up, is there an increase in unforced errors in the first returning months of the well, tour? Well, I want to get the body mass index and, from, and because I'm, I read an article in Tennis.com, and I think it was Matt Fitzgerald who wrote it, that Opelka – like hit 240 and like Tommy Paul was up to 200 pounds during this and that they've just been pounding Oreo milkshakes and you know this is from them and Opelka and they both slimmed down Opelka's like yeah I ran a 10k the other day because I need to lose weight and he's like down to 227 um and by the way 240 no Wait, t- Opelka or up TP? to 200 uh which which but TP for 61 oh, okay six, I was two, gonna say TP it that's you that's you I, I was just I, so you're saying no, I'm a lot. No, because is a well-proportioned <laughs> 200. You're also not a pro athlete. Pro athlete, you you know what I will say to this. When you're pro athlete, I'm like, dude, I need. I, this is not. This is weight shaming, which is not actually true. I love you the way you are. You're always an A plus in my book. You know that. But yeah, when we were getting ready to play tournaments, you know I would always say, Rothman, I need you at like 190, 195, because you're a killer when you're at that weight, and you would always be at that weight. It's true. I mean, it, it's also different when you're in when you're training. Yeah, they're also pros. You know, constantly. Uh, yeah. for, and they're pros, so uh, yeah, it, it makes sense. That is a little heavy for TP, and I'm sure he's getting back into it. Just sounds amazing. But uh, that's two forty. Dear boy. God, um, yeah. I mean, that's a big boy for sure. But anyways, increase in unforced errors on tour. I'm gonna give it. Minus a hundred. I think they're. I think you're gonna see. When's the start date? Is the start date January twenty twenty one? Because if that's the case, I'll take. The... No, it's yeah, start from the first tournament. Is that back. January twenty twenty one, or is that because if it is, then no. Um, if it's not, then absolutely. Yeah, you're saying you think that there's going to be an yes, increase if we absolutely. see it in the next I, I mean, month. I've been watching we these exos. Yana Konifan is spectacular, but it wasn't the cleanest play. Um, so yeah, yeah it's, fair enough. It just depends on when the start date is again. All right. Uh, to your question, you asked me earlier, I said, I have a fake odd for you. You were asking me about ball boys, fake odd for you. Will we ever see ball, ball boys, ball girls again at a tournament? Because there was already a movement before it's disgusting. Why are they touching the players towels? Do we really need this? I say, will we ever see them again? Yes. Is minus two fifty. No is plus 500. Which are you taking? Oh, you're I mean, so wrong. Obvious, yes. But go on. I mean, it the 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 caveat to this is that it might change, but your talent you you think you're gonna have players getting their own balls? Yeah, right. They're they are so accustomed to that style to being able to you know toss a ball to the back corner and have it you know just magically appear to them next point when they want it for their serve so here's you're the crazy thing. A, you until it's away. safe they're just not going to be there and they're a luxury they're a luxury you don't need for True. a tournament in any precaution god forbid a ball kid got sick and the pr for that tournament is ruined the tournament's ruined and of course that's not to say that should be the pr is not the concern for doing something like that of course but you know 
it's something that had always been talked about. It's like, it's kind of degrading. It's like, do we really need to do this? And it's not, you know, for some kids, it's the experience of a lifetime. But it's just like, do we really want them touching players' sweat? Do we want them touching their snot? So, you know, if there's a caveat of, are they ever going to touch the player towel again? That's a resounding probably no. But I could see a scenario where they just don't yeah. bring them back, where they're like, hey, guys, you can do this on your own. And the only issue is if it adds time to the match. You know, from a TV, yeah, from a TV perspective. That's little. But I, you know, and you know what else I was gonna say is that it's shot true. clock is gonna have to jump up to like a solid forty who, seconds at least. Which player is most likely to diddle around and be like, "No, I'm just trying to retrieve the ball." Oh, it hit my foot. Whoopsies. Who's most likely to take advantage of that rule? I feel like not Rafa because he's OCD. I could see Djokovic bouncing balls just off of every angle. <laughs> I mean that, or just taking his sweet oh. time to go pick it up. You know, like oh, I missed that forehand. I'm gonna just to pick up the ball. He's just like in the position. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. Nice I little mean, stretch. So action. again, what are you hitting? The yes minus two fifty. The no plus five hundred. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm hitting that, yes. Um, but that's fair. That's it's always a good place to end. Any final thoughts for you before we wrap today's podcast? <laughs> Go watch old tennis. It's fun. Do it with a friend. Talk about I'm it while it's happening. Because it's golden. a place where everyone can go see you and I, two friends, uh, different strokes from different folks. Uh, talk about the 2009. That's the. Do you remember the Gap commercial between Future and? Uh, oh my God, who's her name? I I forget her name. Um, oh my God. Oh, she's this. Oh, Seal, not Seal. Seal's not a. Um, I don't remember her name. Anyways, there's just a great commercial where it's different strokes from different folks. I'll look it up as we go. Anyways, you talk about a place where people can go look up. Uh, I look up commercials from Gap and the jingles that are stuck in my head. But you guys can go watch Max and I talk about old tennis. If you go check out our CR Classic YouTube video where him and I break down the 9 Wimbledon final, uh, we talk about, uh, you know, why that match stands out in tennis history, how close Roddick came to it. Share was who it it's was. Share. One of my favorite commercials. Actually, if you want to play it right now, by the way, in, or just play it as we go out of here, you know, Westock can clean it up from there. But anyways, go check out that CR Classic. Go check out Overserved, all of our YouTube content. I know you all enjoy because our super producers have been killing it on there. If you've missed any of the podcasts we've done, this podcast, the Great Shot podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, we're firing on all cylinders this week. And of course, we've added a fourth to our repertoire as well the inside out podcast our look at some of our favorite narratives from tennis's past season one called the belt gives out a a championship award to the best american male tennis player in any given season we talk about all the different eras how what tennis looked where american men's tennis was in comparison to other countries at the time it is a series we know you all will enjoy in season two on the horizon as well i'll give you all a little tease we're talking a little college tennis in that one Uh, one of my favorite narratives maybe the reason I'm as into tennis as I am is the subject for season two so be on the lookout for that as well and of course if you've missed any of our content be sure to go to our website crackedrackets.com twitter instagram facebook youtube you can follow us there subscribe like you know rate review all the things you know by now the deal and if you want to dm us directly I'm at great shot pod I believe he is at max l roth and we are always happy to chat to get us all through these coronavirus self-quarantining times the people who get me through all the times here at crack records are super producers max Lager and daniel westoff who have a of an ending job to do as they always do day in day out shout out to them uh shout out to you maxi as well it is great having you back on these podcasts with more routine uh you know any final thoughts Thanks, again baby. before we wrap 
If anyone wants a Warzone partner, let me know. Your boy's getting back into it. Yeah, Mario Tennis <laughs> is out. AO Tennis 2 out. Warzone back in. It's true. It, it Look, uh, PGA Tour is coming out with a 2K21. We need a 2K21 uh, mm. Grand Slam edition. Let's let's get 2K I involved with tennis, about this, and I'll be and This thrilled. is a conversation we'll have off mic, but a little tease for the listeners we can have on mic. We're talking about rankings we want to do for Monday podcast, and we have our ranking we're already going to do for this Monday. But in the future, let's just give our five favorite highlights to binge watch because I think that's an easier one. What are the five highlights when we're we you know our comfort Done. food of YouTube tennis highlights? Because I mean, everyone knows one of the matches that's going to be on my list. Spoiler alert: uh, the 2012 Australian Open semifinal between Djokovic and Murray. Yeah, but uh, I'm curious Shocker. to hear what the other five would be for you. I'm curious to find out what my other four would even be, what I would go with. So those are all things for all of you fans to be on the lookout for the horizon. Uh, and, of course, a lot of these podcasts are made possible by our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use the promo code CR15, 15% off all of your orders. But with that being said, for my wonderful co-host, Maxwell LeBauer-Rothman, for our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westhoff, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel, podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin maxi what do we tell our listeners and we will see you all that's tomorrow. a break Thanks, everyone